that builds mental toughness is confidence. Hi everyone, my name is Antoine C. Hi, I'm Rosie Frankowski from APU. I'm Haley Sorbel. Hi, this is Andy Newell from Stratton Mountain School Solomon team. It's doing the hard workouts. We're talking about practice, man. Week after week, effectively. What brings you? Well, competition, yeah. you know. That's the great thing about sports. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I know I'm doing it really, really well. First of all, skis need wet. I took care of it. It's illegal in nine countries. I saw that. Skis are just fast as lightning. Yeah. Play to win. You're really fun racing. I don't care if you don't have any wins. You go play to win. I don't think he's going to get that message, Joe. I mean, the guy's got worms in his living room. I'm not superstitious, but... I am a little stitious. I've had it with this dump! We've got no food, we've got no jobs, our pets' heads are falling off! I have to pause for one second because my oven is beeping. <laughs> you probably heard it in the background. <laughs> Hold on a minute. You know, we're going to have to work hard, and we're going to we're gonna have to train hard, but, you know, this, this group has got, a, has got a gnarly work ethic, you know, so that's not going to be the problem. Just be tough, you know? I, I think... I think that that's a way that skiers, American skiers, have found success in the past, and I don't think that that's likely to change. Ready? I was born ready. Here we are, broadcasting live on Shuffle Lake Public Radio. This is the Cedar Skier Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Cedarquist. We've got a great show lined up for you today. Chris Grover joins the podcast all the way from Sun Valley, Idaho. Yep, there's still snow on the ground, people. It is April 23rd, and we are continuing the training season on snow going. Save a roller ski, stay on snow. That's the motto here at the Cedar Skier Podcast. We are very excited about this show. We asked Chris Grover all about his thoughts on the last World Cup season, including Jesse Diggins' overall title. We also kind of dig in a little bit about what he thinks she will plan to do next year in the Olympic year, if she'll focus on going for individual gold or if she'll try to stay on top on the overall. We also ask him about Gus Schumacher, some of the other athletes on the U.S. ski team and NCAA athletes, and who he likes upcoming in the pipeline. So stay tuned. All that and more here on the Cedar Skier podcast brought to you by the United States Ski Pole Company, Vitamix, and Sport Hill. Stay tuned. 10,000 feet, you know, here we are. Above all the clouds, but below all the stars. Whoa, 10,000 feet, you know, here we are. Ralph, I think that's got to be the last time we play that song ever again. Yeah, I know in the show, at some point we mentioned... Every show we have to mention that we are at 10,000 feet, but I just think we need to stop doing it through poor musical performance. Anyway, Cedar Skier Podcast, we know you're here to listen to the Chris Grover interview, so we're going to get to that right now, and then we will talk about some more things on the other side of that. So this was our sit-down conversation with Chris Grover earlier this week. We're going to play that interview for you, and then at the end we will... um, We'll recap and talk about some other things here on this edition of the show. Here it is, Chris Grover. Um, thank you, Chris Grover, for joining us. Uh, and actually, maybe just introduce yourself for some of the. I have a few distance runners who might be, you know, tuning in occasionally too. So you just want to let let them know who you are. <laughs> yeah, sure. My name's Chris Grover. Um, I'm the program director for U.S. Ski and Snowboard Cross Country Team. Um, I've been the, I was the head coach for the previous 
decade, uh, but just turned over the reins of that position to Matt Wickham, who is extremely able and doing a fantastic job um, in that position. Um, I'm originally from Alaska, but I live in the Sun Valley, Idaho area and with my family and I've been here for a long time and lifelong skier and cross-country ski racer and cross-country ski racing enthusiast. So thanks for, thanks for having me. Yes. Awesome. Well, I, we're going to kind of divide this into three parts a little bit, but start with some World Cup reflections. And so I'm just kind of curious and reflecting on the year, what were some things that maybe you were pleased to see, not so pleased to see, and surprised to see? And I, I'll let you decide the categories, whether it's performance or leadership or other nations or teams or athletes, but uh, those sort of three things looking back on on this rather strange, but we made it through World Cup season. Yeah, I mean, gosh, it, like you mentioned, it was really kind of a, it was such an unknown going into the season. And I think we wrestled, you know, as a team, I know there were, we had many athletes in our program who, of course, you know, last, last year we canceled all of our training camps. We had no national team training camps for U.S. ski team. We had no in-person development camps that we ran. We didn't feel like it was safe to put, to ask people to go on airplanes we ended up canceling our entire super tour, um, you know, our national competition series domestically here in the US. We didn't feel like it was fair to ask people to go to these races to qualify by getting on airplanes. So um, just a really like tough situation going into the year. As we headed over to World Cup, we had a lot of athletes that were really nervous about the process of, or the prospects of coming out of their home environments. We'd all been at home for eight months at that point. Um, since the World Cup abruptly ended, you know, in um, Quebec City the year before. So people were quite nervous. And I think we, uh, and they didn't know, the athletes really didn't know if it was the right decision to go and race World Cup. Um, and we as a staff wrestled with that too. We didn't, we, we were torn. We actually didn't know if it would be responsible to go and race World Cup. Um, in the end, we decided that we felt like we had enough safety protocols between us, between the different organizing committees for the races and between the FIS that we felt reasonably you know, sure that we could keep the team safe and keep the staff safe. We did give every, we did give every staff and athlete the option to totally opt out. Um, so if people said like, I don't feel comfortable working on the World Cup or I don't feel comfortable participating we let them know that that would not impact their team status, that would not impact their um, employment with US Ski and Snowboard. Um, in the end, everybody decided to come. Um, and I think in hindsight, it was a, a good decision. In fact, we had some people who left home clubs and then back at their home clubs, people started getting sick actually in the US. And we, ironically, we ended up maybe being more safe on the World Cup um, in Northern Scandinavia, for example, yeah. in the opening weeks, than people were back home in the United States. Um, and so we, we kind of like, you know, we, we felt we ended up feeling good about it, but it, take, it took a long time to get to feel good about it. And we actually, you know, we made it through on the World Cup side, we ended up making it through the entire World Cup season um, without a single confirmed case of, of COVID. We had one positive with Sophie Caldwell that may have been a false positive based on the fact that she had two negative PCR tests immediately after that 
never got had any symptoms, nor did anyone else in our program. Sure. So that was a huge, that was like a huge, that was probably the biggest victory for us of the season was to get everybody through four months of travel, athletes and staff, and keep everybody healthy and safe. Um, we were really, really proud of, really proud of that accomplishment. And it felt terrible <laughs> as we did it because it was so stressful. It was, it was, and it was a time when you kind of like second guessed every decision you made, second guessed, you know, is the lodging safe enough? Is the transport safe enough? Is the, um, is our plan for, you know, moving from venue to venue safe enough? Is our, is the food, our, how we're doing our food, is that safe enough? So did that on that point, even did, did it become sort of going from, I know early in the pandemic, there was this very universal, we don't even know anything about COVID. So everyone was kind of on edge to later on, I think the, um, the two sides, right? The divisions that I'm sure even you guys sort of saw there where all of a sudden your choices, the image that you're um, promote, you know, showing by making a choice to do this or that or appear, it became, that became almost just as important, if not more important, which I'm sure that kind of added the complexity, right? You're not only thinking literal health risk, but what is the sort of image that we're, we're showing as well as, you know, and to not offend people on either side, right? And to kind of be sensible, but also not offend. I'm I just curious, was that sort of something too, that maybe you talked with in, within the staff and then even on the world cup too, amongst other coaches from other countries. I, I'm curious what that was like. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had the, you know, I remember discussions with the FIS after the opening weekend, after the Ruka mini tour, you know, we had a coaches meeting with, led by the FIS at that point, Lillehammer had just pulled out. We had an open world cup weekend all of a sudden that we weren't intending to have. Um, and we came together as a group with, with the FIS medical experts and said, okay, what did we do well? What did we do poorly over this first weekend? And we realized that, like, you know, we had, you know, the organizer had laid out coaching zones out on the course, but there wasn't quite enough space. And so yeah. the coaches were kind of packed into these zones. And we said, look, we need to have limited amounts of people in these zones. We need to have more space. So the zones need to be bigger. We can't have a situation where there's coaches without a mask on when they're, when there's a camera, like filming the athletes going by these you know, these zones. So we need to make the masks more ubiquitous and more accessible around the venue. We need to have masks that the athletes can grab right as they come across the finish line. And then, you know, disposable masks that they can put on right away. If they can't get to their bag right away, for example, you know, their warmups right away. So there was lots of like great kind of like learning as it went on. You're absolutely correct that there was, um, we were careful in terms of the image that we put out to the community. We didn't want to have photos of athletes or staff um, on Instagram or on Twitter or anywhere else where people were unmasked or looked like they weren't taking the um, taking the virus seriously. Um, that wasn't. I can tell you that really was not a problem for our team. If anything, we were you know we're always hypochondriacs, um, and if anything, we just took it to like the you know the nth degree this year and probably went a little bit overboard with it. Um, but, you know, the athletes took it extremely serious, seriously. I think like we, we were worried, we were very worried as were all the other nations that somebody might get sick and it might have a significant impact on their athletic career. It might right. reduce their ability to actually win prize money in the future and to, and to, and to have, you know, the career that they want to have. And so we were, 
we took it extremely seriously. Um, and that's probably what helped us stay, stay healthy for, for the entire year. But we probably took the protocols a little bit too far, sometimes being overly cautious. But the other part of that is like, we, we also wanted to be um, good guests wherever yeah. we went. We wanted to really make sure that we protected the communities that we were in, that we protected the people that were working in the hotels um, and in, on the airlines and any transport people and any food service people. Um, so, so yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, we took it, took it quite seriously and we did learn a lot as we went. Um, but we, we started with strict protocols and we really ended with strict protocols. Yeah, that's, I, I find, you know, as a 30 year old, I'm sort of in the demographic of you've got pretty much no risk of long term from just a, are you going to die standpoint, right? So that, you know, but also long endurance athlete, the one risk you have is it would take away the thing that you love the most, right? Or jeopardize that other career. So I think, I think that's one thing where a skier could maybe kind of tote both lines of where this pandemic has come. And and I think you guys, the US ski team, just as phenomenal stewards of, like you said, leaving a, you know, being good guests. I think I, I remember Wickham at a conference I was at talking about, you know, the US ski team leaves a place better than how they got there. And we should probably set that, you know, you guys probably be training the other teams on how to do that. I, I've, I'm always like, I'm really proud to be an American when I watch the ski team and how they interact on and off the course in so many different ways. So that's, that's kind of a kudos to you on that point, you know, uh, when it comes to pandemic, I, we won't, we won't go too much farther down that, but you know, it did present an interesting dynamic for performance opportunity too. And we saw Rosie Brennan kind of come out early and um, really have some good races right away. Uh, Jesse Diggins had an incredible opportunity on the overall and, and actually, before we talk about the Jesse Diggins, because I have a question that's kind of loaded there. Were there any other sort of surprise performances on our team that that came about over during this pandemic? And even maybe if it was states, stateside, something that kind of happened that caught your eye, NCAA that caught your eye, or just on the World Cup. Yeah, this, you know, this person really took advantage. I, I wasn't totally seeing that coming, or we're really excited moving forward. Yeah, definitely. I mean, of course, like Gus Schumacher's arrival on the World Cup. You know, we obviously we knew he was good, right? I mean, like yeah. as world junior champion, he, we've known him for a long time that he's that he's extremely professional, that he's got a really high capacity for absorbing training, um, that his technique is excellent, that he's been prepared well. We knew all those things, but I think we were a little bit taken aback by by really how how good he was, how early. I mean. The fact that like, you know, in Falun, he was, he was ninth place in that 15K skate with the full Norwegian, Swedish, uh, yeah. Russian, Finnish teams just shows kind of like the caliber of the athlete on a given day. Um, he almost, you know, he was second place in the U23 uh, World Cup standings, I think behind Lapalus. Um, I think that's how it, it shook out at the end. If not, he was very close to, you know, being the best U23 as a first year U23. So that's, that's yeah. really quite incredible, like against that field. And I think, you know, for him to finish, I think he finished 18th overall in the tour de ski in his very first tour de ski, you know, to have the best American men's performance um, in the history of our attendance at the tour de ski, given the quality of some of the distance men that we've had come through the tour guys like Noah Hoffman and Chris Freeman, for example, come to mind. That's really, it's quite incredible um, to have somebody that's that good that early. So that was a huge standout performance. Um, 
you know, domestic was quite hard to quite hard to judge. I'd say for sure the results that we saw by Sidney Palmer Ledger and by Novi McCabe in the collegiate races that they did get to race, including the NCAA championships, uh, both as freshmen were quite quite extraordinary. Of course, we knew they were quite good, um, and we thought we were going to have great opportunities to see them race internationally, both at World Juniors and at the Nova Mesto World Cup. And then that really fell apart for both of them due to quarantine and due to race cancellation. So, um, you know, I think those were, I think had we seen those guys on the World Cup, we would have seen some pretty, or, or World Juniors and the World Cup, we would have seen some pretty spectacular performances um, that we just didn't get a chance to see. The uh, going going forward here with the, with this question I have about Jesse Diggins, her season was historic in nature, and I'm just kind of curious how she's going to approach next year. And it seemed like at the end here she was prioritizing the World Cup, and in doing so, sort of like you know she knew she wasn't going to be at the championships quite as peaked as the other athletes, you know, because at that point she's she's all in on the overall title. And I think Matt Wickham had expressed that on an interview with Jason at Faster Skier too. That's like, yep, we know what we're doing, and she's still going to give it a good run. And if that's that almost made it more crushing to see her, you know, just miss out on the podium because you're like, yeah, if she had you know peaked for this, who knows what happened? But you know, what do you do? This that was. I mean, I think we could all say that's the right decision, but I'm just curious, is she going to flip the script next year and kind of go, yeah, now overall done, been there, done that. The last thing on the resume is like an individual medal. Um, and so, and maybe speaking on that too, is the next component is, well, how does she feel about her title? So I don't know if you wanted to, the first part of that question is just what's her focus for next year. And then maybe you can explain the why. Yeah. No, you know, you know, it's a good question for Jesse. Um, I haven't spoken to her specifically um, about kind of like what her goals are yet for the year. Everybody's been decompressing pretty seriously. Jesse, yeah. as we know, like went four months without seeing her fiance. And so we've tried to, you know, since we did come home from World Cup, we've tried to give everyone some good space after such a long, like kind of challenging, mentally challenging push on the World Cup. Um, but I would say that I would guess that for Jesse, the Olympics is is the critical point of next season. It is what she's targeting. As you have suggested, she's done about everything in the sport. You know, she has an Olympic gold medal that's a team medal. She has a world championship medal of every color. She's got a couple crystal globes now. Um, she's really like, she's really done it all. Um, but I, I know she'll be focused on on Beijing and um, she'll really, she's at the height of her career. You know, she's at the height of her career. She's at an Olympics, which I think, I think is going to play to her strengths in terms of like the temperature, um, that we expect. We expect the Zhangjiaku venue to be quite cold. Um, Jesse is a warm blooded individual who tends to struggle in warm temperatures and tends to really excel in cold temperatures. Her breakthrough um, as a young athlete on the World Cup came in Moscow and Rabinsk <laughs> in some sure. extremely cold temperatures where all of a sudden she went into a skate sprint. She, she may have still been a junior or if not a first year senior. And she won the qualifier in Moscow in extremely cold temperatures. And all the other coaches thought that the Swiss timing was broken. Um, but no, she actually is just, <laughs> she thrives when it is, when it is cold out. So I think there's, 
for Jesse, you know, I think there's uh, an opportunity in Jean Giacu to have some career, uh, uh, further career building like uh, results there. So I, I would imagine she's quite focused on, uh, on those races. That's the Minnesota in her. I'm a, I'm, I'm local Minnesota. So there we go. I'll say that. That's kind of a cool, a cool insight. I hadn't thought of either. And I think watching this the whole way through, you had mentioned, you know, we made the decision as a team to go over there. We're going to compete the world cup and Norway sort of bounced in, bounced out. I don't know exactly, you know, what that was like, if it was awkward amongst coaches or athletes or frustration or whatever, but ultimately I think, Hey, you can't control who shows up. So we're going to compete. That's what we can control. And you know, Jesse is the Steve Prefontaine of cross-country skiing, I would say, where just the ultimate role model in, in how she competes and the, and the ultimate competitor leaves it out there in every race. And, and I'm, I'm curious if there's this, this part of her gut where she goes, hey, I'm the rightful winner of the overall title, but there's this part of me that wants to prove to everyone that it wasn't a fluke, you know? And if, if all these teams were here the whole time, I could do it as well. And I, you know, based on what I've read with her blogs and just kind of trying to gather her personality, I've never spoke with her before, but it just sort of seems like she's the kind of person that has the right mindset of, hey, I give it my all. But at the end of the day, I also look back and go, I'm happy with what I did there and I'm moving forward, right? Always kind of this growth mindset. So how does that sort of tension, do you think as a coach or with her and Zathy, where she's thinking, I still, I want to really show them that that wasn't a fluke versus I'm happy, satisfied and moving forward. Just kind yeah. of curious. I would guess it's the latter. I mean, I, I don't, I, I mean, from our perspective, there wasn't a fluke there. I mean, she's somebody who can kind of like do it all, right? I mean, she's a good sprinter as well as a good distance skier. And so, you know, had Therese, for example, been there all season, Therese would have won a lot of distance races. I think we all, we all recognize that. But Jesse would have gotten a leg up on her in a lot of sprints, if not, you know, if not all the sprints. And Jesse really competed in everything last winter. So oh. I think like there would have been there would have been a battle for it for sure. Um, Jesse would have been very much in the hunt for for winning that battle. Um, and um, you know, in the past, we've seen that like when she's when Jesse's in her top form she can really fight for the overall with everybody included. And that, you know, if we go back to 2018, she almost won the overall World Cup without trying. Um, yeah. In fact, you know, she, she and Keegan won that gold medal in the Olympics. And, you know, we sent her to New York City for a week <laughs> um, to do a bunch of interviews on the Today Show yeah. um, and to do a little bit of a media tour. And, you know, that's what, that's what she and Keegan wanted to do, but it's also kind of like what we thought was the best for building her career. And she ended up skipping Lottie um, that weekend and then came back and started winning so much, so many podiums, getting on so many podiums that she almost won the world cup without trying. So, yeah. you know, that's a year where everybody's participating in, in everything. Um, and she damn near, I think she passed, maybe it was Heidi Vang and, and maybe, it was Ingeveld Flugstad uh, uh, Osberg who ended up winning that year, or it was the other way around. I can't quite remember, but I think like, you know, we also saw Jesse beat everybody this year, you know, from Therese Johag to at, at some point, um, you know. To yeah, I was in Frida that 10K. Frida Carlson yep. to Ebba Anderson to Krista Parmakowski to Napareva or whomever. So, you know, she had a crack at kind of everybody at some point this year and actually beat them. So, 
I, I think like, I think she would have been fighting it for her e either way, but I know that we all feel like, you know, that was legit. We did everything, yeah. we did everything we could. Um, and we put ourselves out there, you know, to some, to some extent, we put ourselves in a bit of a risk situation to actually participate. Um, and so it was very much earned by her in, in our opinion. And I think she probably feels that way too. Yeah, that, and and Jesse, if you're listening, if you ever listen to the Cedar Skier podcast, <laughs> I just want you to know, I don't think it was a fluke. And in fact, I think the most important because of this, the the 10K freestyle victory over Yohag was the stamp of it. If that wouldn't have happened, then I think the the sports radio uh, guys meant to just come up with discussions and cause strife and get clicks would have said, oh no, this was a fluke. But that race really, to me, was the one that that's, was like, yeah, she even beat the best at her best event you know and so i think that that's pretty cool and yeah i so that thank you for that solidifying in my heart i can rest assured uh, the, the other one that was kind of cool as now i'm 30 and this is i guess i have to settle with the fact that i'm getting older from an athlete perspective but i still think i'm i'm up and coming so uh rosie brennan though had this great season and does the nature of her late bloomer, you know, does that sort of, how do you guys handle the Tom Brady effect? That's what I want to jump to, right? Like the, you know, maybe these, these older athletes still have something left to give or, or whatever, but, but how does that, is there any reset in your mindset or, you know, is USA scheme moving forward, this tendency, maybe we're, maybe we got to relook at, at guys and, and try to try to move them into certain events as they grow older, whether it's in distance based things or, or whatever. No, I mean, I mean, first of all, I'd say Rosie, like, you know, she's been good forever, right? I mean, this is, this yeah. is an athlete who won junior nationals multiple times. This is an athlete who was 11th place at the world junior championships, I think in a classic sprint, I want to say she was 11th. So she was on the D team early um, in her career. She was standout. I mean, it's not so many years ago that 11th place at a junior championships might've been the best champ, you know, best result that we had, yeah. uh, you know, that particular season. Um, so she's always been good. She has been off the team twice, um, kind of as she's gone through her development, spent more time collegiate racing, transferred to other clubs. You know, I think for her, the path has been just a little bit less um, streamlined. There's been more ups and downs in it. And a lot of it probably just has to do with her, like figuring out what makes her kind of tick. Um, so but, you know, of course, there, you know, we occasionally have a Holly Brooks or a Caitlin Gregg or somebody like that who, um, you know, was good young, but like becomes really good later. And it, you know, it, I think it's more, it's, it's, it's bound to happen more often for women um, because with women, they do have, you know, a, a time of like, you know, puberty and post puberty where they're trying to figure out body composition and they're trying to figure out energy balance and that sure. process and hormonally it's it can it's very challenging and we know that like that time frame is going to be more up and down for women in general than it is for guys not always but in general so i think our role yeah, as an ngb is when we when we have these very talented athletes to try to give them the resources that they need and shepherd them through that period so that they can get through it and actually start to really like, you know, start to reach their potential in, you know, their twenties basically. But you see that, I mean, that's, you know, that's the same story that you see with, you know, Teresio Hogg or Astrid Jakobsen or Heidi Wang or, or 
Eb Anderson or any of these athletes is they're actually kind of like they've gone they're they're going through these processes and coming out faster and faster. But yeah, super proud, super proud of of Rosie um, and how she's like she's learning what makes her tick. She's never she's not stopping in terms of like trying to improve. She's continuously working on her technique to try to make her technique more efficient. Um, her fitness was amazing, amazing this year. And I think that's, you know, what, you know, back to the, like the original question of like, what did we expect and not expect coming in the world cup? I think we expected that we would have athletes that were extremely fit coming to the world cup. We didn't have any training camps, um, which meant the athletes weren't traveling to training camps, but they also were not traveling to sponsor obligations. Right. Um, and they were not traveling to fundraisers. And they weren't going to friends' weddings, which is a huge thing, as you know. Like <laughs> yeah. when you're in your twenties, man, you're like you, yeah. you have like five weddings a summer that you have to go to, and those are not always quality training and recovery periods around a wedding, mm. for example. <laughs> um, sure. And and so like w- what we saw was we had all these athletes that were basically staying in one place, building fitness from week to week to week. Their rest days were actual rest days, and they weren't travel days or recovering from a wedding type day Um, and so we knew we'd have athletes fit what we didn't what we were concerned about what we really didn't know was how many would be overtrained Hmm. and we thought that could be a serious consideration because if you didn't have these kind of like built-in distractions and breaks into people's into people's plans after eight months of training would people have just overdone it so yeah. definitely had kind of cautioned the team through the process to really be keep their eyes open about overreaching and overtraining and to make sure they had markers that they could utilize to make sure they were staying on track and to our delight people were in good shape when they showed up they're in good shape and they weren't overtrained um for the most part so that was that was a exciting revelation um uh, that took place I think it's interesting you bring up that physiological difference between men and women and how, you know, that um, the women have to go through that period and then they can blossom as they get older. And I think, unfortunately, maybe this is uh, more the nature of World Cup skiing in the the men's side now where you really have to be a serious power sprint threat at the end. And, and typically, you know, as you get over, over 30, you just don't have that explosiveness. However, you know, I think this is where maybe we can look at athletes in the NFL sprinters, like whether it's Justin Gatlin or others, you know, it's, it's, it's not so much that you just by virtue of being older lose that. But I think I can see that tendency. I would, I would imagine that's sort of the difference where you go. Yep. Sorry. As a guy, unless you're just a really good sprinter, we don't have hundred K races where we're asking, you know, where that old men's strength is really going to come through. Um, but, but in terms of, of that off season too, interesting, you know, you go that long period athletes are able to have base, but they're not really in touch with those training camps. How about moving forward into this year? How, um, what's kind of in the work so far and specifically like you to touch on how are we preparing for the altitude element in Beijing? Um, so yeah, what, what do you guys have in the works? I know, I suppose it isn't May when you kind of finalize that schedule and super tour and things, but what can you, what can you let us know about how you're doing in that, on that end preparation? Yeah. Well, in terms of, in terms of preparation camps for the national team, we are going back to training camp. Um, we weren't feeling super optimistic about early camps a month and a half or two months ago. 
but the vaccine status in the U.S. has been actually quite amazing <laughs> in the last, yeah. and, and the accessibility to vaccines, um, as evidenced by the fact that I got my second shot yesterday. Um, but we're going to go to Mount Bachelor and Oregon for a training camp for the second half of May with the team for two weeks. Um, they've got a great snowpack out there. Still, they got you know close to a hundred inch base at Mount Bachelor, and we're going to have the team fully vaccinated. Um, every you know the athletes and the and the staff. So all of a sudden, we feel like we can go back into a preparation um, preparation camp mode. We are going to do less camps this summer. We're going to only do three camps. We're going to do one there. We're going to do one up in Eagle Glacier um, outside of Anchorage uh, with separate men's and women's camps on the glacier at the end of July, uh, beginning of August. And then we're going to be back in Park City at altitude in October. So that's a really lean camp schedule for us. Typically, we are doing four to five camps a year with the national team, with the, with the A, B, and D teams. Um, however, it's a little bit of a hybrid between doing nothing last year and getting back into camps. We are um, emphasizing being on snow and emphasizing altitude as we do it. Um, but the other reason that we are doing less camps is that, frankly, we can't do some of the camps in some of the great locations we've done before. We can't go to New Zealand, for example. Right. Right. Uh, we can't get into New Zealand. so. That's off the table. We don't know if we're going to be able to go to someplace like Norway to get back into a Tapidrets, you know, roller ski race type series. So some of the things, some of the projects that we've really gravitated towards in the past are just not available. So we're sticking, we're sticking to what we know we can do within the United States. Um, in terms of altitude, one of the real keys for us is um, actually preparing for pacing. At the, yep. at the altitude of the Jean-Giacu venue, which is 1,650 meters. And luckily we have a lot of venues um, that are actually at that altitude. So for example, the skiing at Mount Bachelor is close to that altitude. The skiing yep. at Eagle Glacier is basically that altitude. The skiing at Soldier Hollow, when we're doing a dry land training camp um, is at that altitude. And that is also why um, Soldier Hollow is hosting U.S. National Championships next year uh, because they are at the same altitude as, as Jean Giacu. So um, we will be working in all these camps at kind of like dialing in pacing, working specifically on which techniques for which athletes and which terrain um, to get ready for it. Um, and that's that's really kind of like one of the focuses of our of our preparation program. In terms of like national calendar and super touring, super tour, um, it looks like we are going back. I mean, we, right now we're planning on a full super tour, um, 21 races um, spread out from uh, early December through early April, um, so a little bit in Canada, most in the US, uh, but we do wanna get back to a full super tour calendar and we're hoping that it will be safe enough to do so. That's really exciting. Um, and it, of course, it's 10,000 feet up here in Leadville. So if you need a last minute 10, feet, you know, here we are. super <laughs> compensation experience, um, you know, I've got a few bedrooms so we can, the Sprinter van, I can sleep out there if we need to house some athletes. No, uh, that's really cool. And, and that's awesome. So nationals that the January nationals will be in Salt Lake 
is that's very very cool. And I think sometimes people they misconstrue what altitude preparation really means too, in terms of like the difference between spending six months at altitude to gain physiological gains there versus what you're saying. Hey, we need to know how to pace at this. So we're we're, we're coming coming here for three or four days is very beneficial, you know. So I think just for for those listening who are kind of like wait. So they're going to race once or twice or here. And then that, no, it's like, that is, it's about a learning experience. It's totally different um, pacing, especially with skiing when you're adding the fact that it's muscular, uh, not just running, uh, you know, my runner podcast. I got to do that. You got to, got to point that out. All right. So I had John Munger on my show last year, kind of right. I think it was April or May sort of, and it was really heart wrenching as a Minnesota native too, to kind of have that pulled out. I'm just kind of wondering, you, you talked about the super tool, what that looks like. Are there any plans in the works though, for bringing a world cup back to the States or is that just sort of gone for good? No, there is where, in fact, like, you know, I was actually on a, a meeting earlier today with, um, with folks from the Loppet foundation who of course were the host OC for what was going to be the Minneapolis world cup. Uh, but with folks from there, with folks from the American Berkey. Um, and so there is still big interest in the Midwest, in Minnesota and Wisconsin to bring World Cup to, uh, back to the United States. And I'm really thankful, really thankful for those, these, for the vision and, you know, the work ethic of, of the people that are behind this um, and want to make this, make this happen. So we are having discussions um, with these potential organizers here at US Ski and Snowboard. We're also having discussions with our Canadian counterparts. Um, and we are likely going to put together um, a bid for 2024, uh, which is a non-championship year um, for a series of races in North America. There's, as you might imagine, like there are a lot of complicated finances behind these decisions. They are extremely expensive races to, to run. Um, and so like the, the real challenge for these organizers is like, how do we, how do we make sure that, you know, we, that we are finding enough sponsors to like, to really make this financially, financially viable for us. So we're in that process right now, but there are some people that are really passionate about bringing World Cup back to North America. And from the US Ski and Snowboard side, we are passionate about it as well. So it's, it's happening behind the scenes right now, discussions are happening. And I think like in the next months, you're gonna start to, to see news of it. So you talked earlier about um, some young females. So are, wait, no, you had mentioned uh, Novi and was the other Utah, the, the Utah, Sydney. Sydney yeah. Mm-hmm. And so a couple youngsters on the NCA scene, Zach Ketterson and Sophie Lockley, I think it was December, January, where they, they went over and were competing in the Norwegian um, national circuit for a, a shorter, t- a short time. Uh, but anyway, I was wondering kind of, were there any conversations before that? Maybe, maybe that's totally out of, you know, your guys' jurisdiction. I, I don't really understand how it all works, but did he kind of just go there and all of a sudden you were like, wow, Zach's in Norway? Or was it, you know, kind of a, a conversation and a plan that had happened before with either one of them? And yeah. also, even though this is unique, it was COVID that kind of led to it. Is that something you could see moving forward? Like maybe having some athletes do if they're interested or, you know, is this just a one-time thing with COVID making that yeah, happen? I mean, I mean, no, we definitely, you know, I definitely was in communication with Zach and with um, uh, Sophia ahead of their trips. 
Um, also with uh, Peter Walter, um, who skis at Middlebury okay. College. He was over there um, racing as well. And for all of those athletes who are collegiate athletes, I think they kind of like did the calculation of like, look, you know, my school's online or yeah. it doesn't make sense for me to go to school. And then to see, you know, the fact that like we had to cancel our national calendar um, of racing in the US. And so they're like, okay, well, where am I going to get? And at that, and Europa Cup was a little bit of a mess as well. At that time, there were events being canceled. I wasn't sure if, if those races were gonna happen. And so I think all of those, all of those athletes, all of them had a connection to Norway, by the way. So, you know, Sophia has dual citizenship. Right, right. Um, and Zach's girlfriend, I believe, is Norwegian. Yep. And Peter's had some very good friends in Norway. And so that was the connection that were like, they're like, look, these Norwegian cup races are happening. And right. we know that the level of competition is extremely high. So I'm going to go there. They reached out and said, like, you know, will you guys as discretionary committees that are involved in the selection of world juniors u23s world cup world championships will you consider races from norway and we said absolutely you know we'll consider <laughs> at yeah. this point we're considering races from anywhere you know anytime that you can put on a bib is is a win so right. go, absolutely go and do that so so it was great. So, you know, I, Sophia's sending us results and Zach sending us results and Peter sending us results. And we were considering all of those. It was, man, it was an impossible year, um, really impossible year to, to try to select all these athletes via discretion. Um, oh, I'm sure. The most imperfect uh, <laughs> selection that we've ever had. Uh, it was apples and oranges trying to select from basically a glorified time trial in one region versus a fist race in another region versus a u.s ski and snowboard sanctioned race in another region you know um it was impossible and i really have to say like you know thank you to all of these athletes who understood what a tough situation was it was and understood like how imperfect our selections were and people just didn't freak out People were, you know, sometimes disappointed when they got left off a team, but they were like, yep, that's just how it goes. It's an impossible year. And I think the whole community, athletes, coaches, parents are really to be commended for like getting through it without kind of without, you know, without panicking and, and understanding that it just wasn't going to be ideal. Well, and I, the, the, the concern I come from former NCAA athlete, you know, and division three, division two, I have some like ties there and, and see the importance and the value of that. And now coming into skiing, seeing the value of the pipeline in that realm. But now it's like, there's this tension. Okay. If you're a really high level NCAA athlete, you have the choice of going to Norway and maybe, maybe competing there. You know, do we start to see this trend of athletes going, yeah, maybe I won't ski NCAA anymore, you know, cause I could go do that while I'm trying to prove myself, um, which would, which I, I would think would just not be a good thing for the overall health of the pipeline, you know? Um, so I'm kind of interested, what's your take on the sort of status and health of NCAA skiing specifically? I'm sure we could sit here and talk for hours about just the NCAA in general, but, but NCAA skiing and, and even also, also I think belongs in the discussion collegiate skiing so you uscsa as well um i sort of look at that as the division three and i think some skiers tend to just 
throw that off to the side. But if you look at USA track and field, for example, the fact that you have your supports, your support is coming from the D3 runners. They're the ones who run for life, you know, typically and, and occasionally break through, but it's that sort of the, the numbers game that makes, you know, I, I would say our, our track team is maybe the best in the world, you know? And so I'm just kind of curious, they can't, it's not, it's maybe apples oranges a little bit, but how do you look at a situation like that where it's not, not, singling out Zach and Sophia at all, but just like, oh no, it seems like we've had some colleges almost lose their program. And do we really need NCA skiing or not? I, I don't know. What, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think like, I mean, first of all, I think like for all these young athletes coming through their late teens and early twenties, like getting an education is really critical. So however you, however you put it together is critical. Every athlete that's on our, almost every athlete that's on the U.S. ski team D team, um, is either like is is part of like a full time NCAA program, um, or they're at a program like APU, which you know is not necessarily NCAA focused, but is focused focused on you know on international racing. But everybody's working on getting their education, and I think that's that's really critical. And I think you know at times we've from the national team side, we've definitely clashed with the NCAA because of the kind of vision of how you progress an athlete fast enough to keep up with their international peers. And I think the times that we've clashed about it have been a mistake. Um, and I take response, full responsibility for that, for having kind of like that mindset at, at times. Yes, if an athlete is a full-time NCAA athlete or collegiate athlete, it's hard for them to, to to really keep up with like what's happening internationally. Um, but at the same time, it's really critical that they get a good education, that they have more going on than in their lives than cross country ski racing. And we have these incredible institutions with good coaches, good programs, lots of resources, lots of money to help support these athletes during their time there. So we just need to continue to like partner better with all of these organizations um, and make sure that we're all working in the same direction, that we're working for them, that they're working for us, that we're together, we're working for the, the better, you know, the, the benefit of the, of the athletes in their program. So I think we're on a good, a good track right now. Um, you know, we have good relationships with all of the collegiate programs um, that, um, that the athletes on the D team, for example, are going through um, at the moment. The one thing that I do want the the NCAA to keep talking about is sprinting, of course. And this has been, yeah. you know, of course, you know, I've been a bit of a thorn in their side on that topic for probably 15 years um, at this point. And I, I do really feel like we are missing a golden opportunity um, with the, and I realize it's hard. It's hard because it's hard to get things added to the NCAA championships. Um, and in a lot of cases, these collegiate programs are just fighting to like continue to hold on to what they have um, with the NCAA championships in particular. But I do feel like we're missing the boat here. We have some incredibly, incredibly talented sprinters that keep coming through our collegiate programs and they're not really getting a chance to shine the way that they should. I mean, talk about like breakthrough performances like JC Schoonmaker this year, you know, first skate sprint of the year, he qualifies fifth place on the World Cup. Um, you know, incredible, incredible talent. A guy who just qualified for our A-team standard um, as a first year U23 
this year and, and it will be nominated to the A-team. Um, not having much of a chance to shine, um, at least on the sprint side in the NCAA, you know, current racing system. Um, so I think like that's, that's an opportunity that we should continue to talk about. But in general, in general, I'd say that, you know, we want to, we really want to be able to utilize um, these collegiate programs as an absolute resource and a partner in developing these athletes. I think what you're saying too about falling behind or, you know, this is, this is something, there's so many layers to this that you can unpack really, because there's this, there's the issue too, I think where the NCAA maybe doesn't understand skiing. So then they kind of treat skiing like it's a, it's like college football, like it's track, like it's cross country that, that I think presents problems like organizationally for certain things. And, and that's maybe where on the one side, I almost think the fact that us collegiate skiing, They've like, hey, we're just going to make this for skiers by skiers, you know, kind of set it up what we want. That's kind of ideal. But then you also have that issue too, where yeah, over over we've got 18, 19, 20 year olds over in Europe who are coming out, making huge gains, and maybe our our I'm hearing you say our athletes at that same age, if they're kind of being ushered into this, go to college, have a four year, you know, then they come out, they're 23, 24, and you know, Clavo's already won like five world championships at that point in his life, you know, that sort of a situation. And there, there is this tension, it seems like that, um, <laughs> you know, sport and academics, how they, how they merge for the benefit of the individual is so crucial for society. Even it's like, that's what we should be advocating. But at the same t- time, that uniqueness of, of, uh, of skiing as a sport that is, it's just different. But I think that's where the pipeline, that health, overall health is, is critical. It sounds like you guys are really emphasizing that. Are there any changes you see or that you'd like to see kind of moving forward? This could be next year, 10 years from now. Like, what do you want to emphasize growing as, as either whether it's community-based clubs, that younger level, junior level, the collegiate scene, like we just talked about, where's kind of the part where you guys feel like, Hey, this is a weak point. We need to really focus here. Or, you know, this is the key cog to fix at this point or, or not fix improve. I should say. It's a good question. I mean, I think first of all, like as a community, we've come a long way. I mean, the, the results at world juniors U23s for me are, you know, for us are like quite instructive. The fact that we yep. didn't have a medal prior to 2017 ever at World Junior Championships, right? And then we went, you know, four years in a row with medals, including gold individual and two years of men's like gold relay teams. I think that talks to like the that speaks to the quality of the work that's being done out in the clubs. Um, in particular, we have very we have some very educated coaches. We're getting more educated coaches all the time. They are approaching the sport with much more professionalism than I think we had in the country at one point anyway. And that's paying off with athletes that are prepared much better at a younger age. I think one of our biggest challenges that is going to emerge over the next five to 10 years or has already emerged um, is that we're going up against a nation like Norway with so much depth in, in so much popularity of the sport, which creates so much depth in the sport that you have a host of athletes that are skiing, I would say almost technically perfectly. <laughs> um, you have, you know, I don't know if that's 20 men or if it's 30 men or if it's 20 women or, or what the number is currently. But in the Norwegian system, if you want to make a World Cup team or an Olympic team or a World Championship team, you have to do everything right. You have to be 
as fit as possible. You have to have the right body composition. You have to be a student of the sport and understand what it takes to, to help yourself peak. Um, and you really, there's no room for technical inefficiencies um, there. And I think when, and, and so what happens now is like, you know, wh where's the chink in their armor that we can exploit? Like there is none, right? So the only way that we're gonna compete with them is that if we are perfect in our preparation too. And I think one thing that we often see is that we are sending athletes to the World Cup who are not technically skiing perfect yet. We are evolving I, towards it. We are evolving towards it. And perfect, of course, is unattainable, but sure. close, close, <laughs> close to perfect, um, as efficient as possible. So we are evolving in that direction, but we're not there yet. So I would say, you know, to all the club coaches and junior coaches out there and junior athletes, um, we have to get it right. We have to, it's really important that we work on this because our competition is, is already there. Uh, now, uh, one, one follow-up question on that, actually, you brought that up, the technique thing. Uh, and, and again, Chris, like, I'm sorry if I've asked questions that are like, probably, how do you not know that? Cause I'm, I'm relative, I'm new to this, you know, to the scene, relatively speaking. And I've been a sports nerd forever. So I could tell you the starting lineup for like the 1955 Minneapolis Lakers, but you know, I don't know like all these other things. So, but are we as Americans kind of, do we have a, um, you know, they say like ski, like an American, do we have this reputation as being the people who are really agile? You know, like if they had the ski cross, I thought they were about to introduce that. I think they had it at a junior games, you know, and, and I don't know if, it, if I saw something where it's like, Oh, Norway doesn't really want that to happen. Cause the Americans would actually win at that or something like that. But Connecting to your technique side, is this an area where, hey, yeah, we are kind of, uh, we have a strength where kids are, are agile on skis, but they're not really skiing technically proficient. Is that kind of what I'm hearing you say? Or is that even true on a world stage? Well, I'd say, I, you know, I don't know if there's much truth to like, you know, the idea of like ski like American. I'd say we have, a, we have a, a probably a mix just like any other nation does of like athletes that have come up, some that have come up with specialization too early. Um, and don't and are not don't have enough kind of like you know body awareness and proprioception and then we have those who came up through like a wide variety of sports and are able to do just about everything I mean those are the Andy Newells kind of, of yeah. the world that can you know they can you know working with Andy was always was pretty amazing because you could ask him to change something in his technique and he could just do it immediately even yeah. though, you know, he had hundreds and hundreds of hours of muscle memory doing it one way or another. He had this, you know, he still has this kind of amazing proprioception uh, because he's got a background in skateboarding and swimming and rollerblading and skiing and all these different things that kind of led him to being a great, a great all around athlete. Um, and so that like really is important. But of course, we don't have the market cornered on that. There's all kinds of athletes that are coming from all of these nations with a, with a really wide background um, in movement. What we have done, uh, and I really credit Brian Fish um, from our staff for this, he's really pushed um, like basic, basic movement pattern, tra pattern training with a lot of young athletes at development camps. Um, that's been a big thing for him because he's seen a lot of athletes come into the cross country program over the years, whether that's at like a national training group level or D team level, who who just don't lack, who lack the basic like movement. Yeah, skills. basic athleticism uh, almost. Basic athleticism. 
And, and so that's a big part of what he teaches um, at kind of our development camps. Um, we've also, you know, the last five, six, seven years, we've gone to a lot of like a, we have an agility test, right? A roller ski agility test at all of the REG, the regional elite group camps, uh, because we're trying to emphasize to the community that it's not all about aerobic capacity and it's not right. all about general strength. And those things are easier to test. Um, and they are in fact, part of the tests that we run at those camps. But we also want to do an agility course on roller skis because we do want to emphasize the ability to be dynamic on skis um, because it trickles into so many other things that we're that we're doing, um, and it it kind of like opens up the possibilities for somebody to to really reach their potential in the sport as opposed to you know hitting a ceiling where they just they can't progress any further because they can't make the technical changes they need to. Yeah, that general athleticism, I always joke with my older brother, he's been a runner his whole life. I played basketball. So I like was in a lot more different sports, but you know, like, oh, no, Ryan runners are athletic. I'm like, no, no, they're not really. You know, if you run from the time, that's all you do. And, and, I, and he's like, well, I'm pretty athletic. It's like, well, Tom, you, you grew up wakeboarding, playing football, yeah. playing baseball, playing basketball. He was just playing. And I think written into our uh, pipeline stuff. I remember in the, in the L 200 class, I was like, they, I think there was something there for like ages three to five. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that they could just write the word play here too. You know what I mean? Like, obviously he's getting really detailed. Like these are the, this is, these are the exact athletic things that are happening developmentally wise. But, but I think the message, even just going to some, some coaches or parents is like, don't track your kids as hours in on skis when they're four, like have them yeah. in football, basketball, whatever, at other sports, because then they do become, I, I know exactly the Andy Newells of the world. Like I've had, cousins, brothers, relatives, friends who are just like that. And it's like, it's that natural athleticism that comes from doing such a wide variety of things. And yeah, like you're saying, think the wide rate, we can always, we can always try something different training methodology wise or whatever, or adding on more strength or this or peaking at a different time, but you can't really teach a 33 year old that what you're talking about, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of learned when you are like before 12, you know, almost <laughs> to, a, to an extent. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think like, if you've ever seen Claybo play soccer, then you know exactly like what we're talking about. I mean, like incredible athlete and, you know, Ingevild, I think was the, was the same. I think Ingevild Flugstad Osberg was also like on their junior national, junior, you know, national or Olympic program, soccer development program for, for Norway. I think those athletes, you know, could have, chosen a number of sports to go into. Um, and of course there's, you know, the world cup's like rife with the athletes like that who kind of decided to choose cross country, but could have easily gone other directions and been, and been very successful. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really important to emphasize those things. And just, you know, any kind of sliding on a slippery surface at a young age is critical. You know, it's, it's the Alpine skiing, snowboarding, cross-country skiing, ice skating, all of those things that teach like young kids how to be comfortable in a, in a slippery dynamic um, uh, surface is, is really critical to the development. I mean, we've had so many athletes over the years that have come from alpine skiing. You know, Keegan Randall's an athlete who uh, was an alpine racer and came over to cross-country and was kind of immediately successful. Same with Liz Steven. Um, and so it's, having that, having kind of that wide background of, of different types of activities and, and at least having some kind of like ski sport ones is, is really critical. 
Awesome. Well, Chris, I really appreciate the time you've given, given our show today. And it's just been, it's been really fun talking to you. And I did have one more question on here and I don't know if you saw it at the very bottom. So um, this one is I do a show called Skiologians and it's kind of the intersection of um, sports uh, theology, uh, social, political issues of our day. And, and so the last show we had, we were talking about how MLB, the voting thing in Georgia, how they moved their all-star game for kind of proclaiming undemocratic. And, and I sort of brought up this point that, um, you know, we have the Olympics coming up in Beijing in 2022, and we see, all these reports coming in uh, right now, Anta and Nike. I don't know if you're up up to speed, kind of what's been going on there with Nike pulling out because raw materials being sourced in the, I think it's Xinjiang region, probably pronouncing that wrong. <laughs> but essentially, right, we have uh, Muslim women are being placed in these forced labor camps. These are what the reports are saying. Um, Christians being asked to replace religious images with the leader, um, just kind of sort of scary things, I think. You know, as, as someone, we live in a, a wonderful country with all these freedoms and we take them for granted. But I'm just curious, like, is that something even on the radar where you kind of go, if that's still there and it's pretty high profile that we would consider taking a stand as a ski team and going, you know what, we're, we're not going to, we're not going to participate here. Or, you know, I had, I had someone else comment on my show that when I did that, like the boycott in 1980 really wasn't a positive for anyone. The only ones who really lost out were athletes. And, and I tend to agree, you know, if I was an athlete, I think in that situation, I would, I don't know if you could get me to go not go to the Olympics. Are you nuts? Like, you know, I'm just going to separate the two. And, and part of me kind of goes on the one side, I'd like to go, let's just separate everything. Yep. I'm an athlete. I'm going to go do my job. I understand these awful things are happening. I don't agree with them, but I'm here as an athlete and, you know, versus now today we tend to see that merge that blend where it's, yeah, I'm an athlete, but I don't agree with this. So I'm going to pull out. And has there any, maybe, there, maybe it's too early in the game right now where you guys haven't had conversations on that or, or, you know, the, I'm putting it on the radar the first time, but where would you guys, where do you think, you know, just at first glance, you'd come on an issue like that, you know, as the games do approach? Yeah, definitely. You know, that's always, you're right. Like the athlete is just in like, they're in the stickiest place because I think, I think we all recognize that as, as athletes and as, as staff that are going to, you know, support athletes, in different places in the world, there we quite frequently do not agree with with many things that are happening in certain countries, and right. that certainly was the case in Sochi. Um, also, um, going into it, if you kind of remember what was happening with like um, gay and lesbian rights, for example, at that time um, and repression in the in the Soviet or not the Soviet Union in in Russia at that time. Sure. Um, and so like those issues, they're really, they are really hard for athletes and for us staff to kind of like separate. Um, at the end of the day, it's often what you, what you suggested. And that is like, we tend to sometimes put away the politics for a little bit, um, just to go and compete for our nation in particular. And, um, the Olympics comes around so infrequently, um, and the timing of the Olympics is so often um, uh, coincides with the peak of an athlete's career one time. Right. Um, and we don't have input as to where the games go, unfortunately, um, that we find ourselves in a situation where it's like, well, do you want to have the Olympics of your career um, or do you want to sit home during this time? Um, rightly so. And protest some pretty ugly things that 
um, that might be happening in a certain place. And so I think we find ourselves generally coming down on the side of like, I really don't agree with something that's happening in this particular nation, but we do want to go ahead and compete. And we as a staff want to go there and help the athletes like realize their dreams because we're very invested in it, um, in their dreams and, and those athletes reaching their potential um, as well. So that is, it's a really, it's a really tricky thing. I think, unfortunately, um, we also recognize that, um, and this is not to give a pass to any nation, we also recognize that we have a lot of problems in our own nation. Um, right. And this last year, we've really seen that um, highlighted. And I can tell you, it was very surreal for the team to be in the middle of our most successful tour to ski ever um, with athletes winning races and, second, and being second also sometimes. Um, and then to look back and see the riots that were happening in, in Washington, DC and to be shocked, to be yeah. you know, shocked at, um, at, at what was going on at home. Um, not to mention everything that's happened around um, the murder of George Floyd. Um, and, and that, you know, long overdue kind of uh, social justice reckoning that's happening at the moment. So, yeah, so it is, boy, there's no easy answers. We don't pretend to have them. I really hope that, I really hope that um, the U.S. will not boycott um, the U.S. Uh, Olympic Committee and the U.S. State Department um, will not boycott the, the games in Beijing. I don't think they will, but I, I really hope that they won't because um, like you said, the real victims tend to be the athletes in that situation um, and the impacts it has on their career. I think that's for, for as heavy of a question as I sent, said there, that's a very well-spoken answer. And uh, I, 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 again, that the skiologian stuff, we'll talk the Bolshinov fighting thing. I tried to write an article like, oh, here's my inside theological basis for why this will continue happening, blah, blah, blah. And, and I, I always appreciate Matt Wickham, you know, when he kind of came out saying, making kind of a firm stance of like, you know, this, here's what would happen if that happened on our team. And, and I think you guys don't disappoint us at all in terms of being, um, consistent, having standards and kind of sticking by them. And I think that's something that, you know, I guess as a fan and journalist, I'll, I'll just try to hold, hold you to, right. You know, that's kind of the purpose of the question is to go, okay, I believe in truth and consistency. So here's me trying to try to find out and we're holding you to, and that's probably the job of us as a community too. And I think that's, that's something, you know, in the whole social political sphere that hopefully citizens of our country try to hold themselves to in all areas, whether it's sports or, or politics or social issues. And so that was the purpose behind the question. And, and wow, I, I, I'm blown away by your answer. <laughs> so, and it's, it's not, it's, you're, you, I think even bringing up the point that we don't get to choose what the Olympics are, you know, that's huge too. And that makes it way different than MLB, to be honest, because I think that's why people hopped on them. Like, well, this is inconsistent because of X, Y, Z. It's like, you know, we, it's every four years we don't, and it gets chosen about 12 years in advance. So yeah, you know, we've got kids who are 10, 12 years old, who it, that'll be the next issue 20, 12 years down the road of where it is. And, and also, you know, I, I, I'll just highlight again, if you weren't listening people that, you know, to come back and be introspective too. Yep. You know, let's not judge others when there could be planks in our own eyes, kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah, I think that is a good point, to, to be honest. So, um, it, we have we have work to do. Yeah. Of to do at home, and I definitely don't want to like let anybody off the hook because I, you know, really disappointed yeah. to see what's happening in a lot of places in the world. 
uh, and saddened, saddened by it as well. And it's always hard because uh, sports, sometimes we get stuck in the middle of uh, the geopolitics of, of the situation. And, and that's, ah, it's not always fair for the athletes to necessarily be in that position. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, were there any other topics that I should have asked? That's probably my question at the end when I ask guys, I'm like, was there something I should have asked that I didn't ask on this show or something that you, that, yeah, it's blatantly obvious that something you want to talk about as it relates to skiing. Um, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think like, you know, from our perspective, we're really, we're just, we're just grateful to be done with that season actually the past, the past race season, you know, I think from, from a personal side, it was by far the hardest thing I've ever done, you know, the, you know, related to career and, just kind of emotionally, physically, and mentally exhausting um, to go through that. And, and uh, I'm really grateful that, that the vaccine is available and that we're all starting to be vaccinated. And hopefully we don't have to go through something that's quite like that again, um, but really proud, of, really proud of everyone in our, you know, from the athletes to the, to the US ski team staff, to our club coaches, to everyone that was in the community, to the race organizers. I mean, I really have to, like have to give a shout out to all the World Cup race organizers and to the FIST staff and, and medical team as well as our own like US ski and snowboard medical team. Like we, without the, the hard work and forethought and, and just meticulous planning of all these groups, we would not have made it through that season. And we were able to have some normalcy and some competition due to like the hard work and dedication and love of sport of a lot of people. So just grateful. Grateful to have that one in the in the rearview mirror. Well, again, I'll just reiterate. I think as fans, we're proud to be fans of your team. You know, our, of our team and our our program, and and it's it's a joy to log on to to Peacock at two a.m. and and catch the races. Not, <laughs> it's good. So 